As you return to your seats, would you take your Bibles and open with me to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14 in our study through the book of Romans. We're now getting close to the end, uh, beginning this 14th chapter. And our text uh, this morning is Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, which if you're using a Bible from either of the tables, is on page 948. 948. And I want one more time to invite you, if you're able, I invite you to stand so that you might honor the reading of God's holy word this morning. Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. Hear the reading of God's word. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Would you remain standing as we pray once more? Father, I ask that you would use the preaching of your word this morning to continue to shape us. Specifically this morning, use your word to bring us to walk in even greater unity so that Christ might be honored among his people here at Cornerstone. Father, I ask that you would help me. I'm just prone to forget for my mind not to be uh, strong in these moments. Would you just bring to remembrance all that you uh, want me to say, even things that I've not thought of saying that would be edifying to your people, just bring them to mind. And then use, by the power of your spirit, use these words to be like seeds that are just planted deep in our hearts that bring forth the fruit of obedience, 30, 60, and 100 fold. So we pray this for our good and the honor of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. One extremely clear message throughout the Bible is that the Lord is honored by his people walking together in unity. In Psalm 133, the psalmist says how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. 
When Jesus was on his way to the cross, his high priestly prayer, this last prayer he prays before he goes to suffer and die is in John 17 verses 21 through 23. He prays repeatedly that we, his people, both those who believed on him at the time and those who would believe on him, us, that we would be one. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3, Paul says that we must be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And in fact, unity is such a precious reality with Paul as he considers the church that he writes to Titus and says, if there's someone in the church who's divisive, warn him once, warn him twice, and then according to Titus chapter 3 verse 10, then have nothing more to do with him. Unity is a big deal. And I trust that we all know that's true and agree with it. In fact, we no doubt hear those things and say amen. But here's a question. How do you and I, as brothers and sisters in Christ, continue to walk in unity when we may well hold vastly different convictions from each other on on things that, that aren't sin but are very important to us? How would we walk in unity when we hold different convictions on how we should live out our lives in areas of freedom? Now, let me give you an example, and even the example of itself, just me mentioning it, may make you wrestle a bit in your seats. And I think that's probably because it's a helpful example. Let's take the issue of alcohol. Right, so sitting in this room right now, when I bring up the issue of alcohol, there's some of you who immediately think of that topic and think, minimally, that is unwise for Christians to partake of alcohol. Maybe you would say, it's just very clear no Christian should do it. And I have no category for why any Christian ever would. And there's some of you sitting out here today who would cite the scripture saying that that wine gladdens the heart of man that is a gift from the Lord and you joyfully partake of it, maybe regularly. And it may be that the two of you holding these different convictions are sitting side by side, both raising your hands as we sing these songs, right? So the question is, brothers and sisters, how in the world do we, if we hold such differing convictions on these areas of freedom in the Christian life, how do we continue to walk in unity? And you know, I haven't even begun. I've issued one issue. I've not stood up here and gone into the issues of how we educate our children or food production or the role of government in our lives, but I guarantee you, if we wanted, we could divide ourselves into such small groups that we may be on our own in each case, right? So if the way forward is not then simply to separate out into little churches where we can only be around people that we 100% agree on on these matters of freedom in the Christian life, then what is the answer? I mean, this seems like a big and weighty and lofty question. Well, the good news for us this morning is though it is a weighty question, though it is a lofty question, we're not the first believers to face this question. In fact, this is exactly what the believers in the church of Rome were facing. 
When Paul writes to them in chapter 14 of the book of Romans, specifically, well, this whole chapter, in fact, over the next two weeks, we're going to continue to look at this theme a bit. Next week, it'll change emphasis a bit as we look at verse 13 to the end of the chapter. But in these first 12 verses, Paul takes up this issue. And what I want us to see from Paul, I think, is a very clear answer to this question. How do believers who hold differing opinions on how we exercise our freedoms in the Christian life continue to walk in unity. So let me just start out by making the first point of my sermon. It's basically already clear, but I just want to say it, and then I'll show it to you in the text. Number one, in areas where Christians have freedom, we may well differ in our convictions. Let me just state what I've already said. In areas where Christians have freedom, we may well differ in our convictions. Now, let me tell you how I think this was going on at the church in Rome, and then I'll show you some verses in the text that I think support this, this theory of how, what I think is going on in the church in Rome. The church in Rome was made up of both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. So, so made up of Christians, but some of these Christians, their background was Judaism. They had studied the Old Testament, knew it well, attempted to live by it, and then they had come to the recognition that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, and they had placed their faith in him. But there were also Gentile Christians who just had no association with the Old Testament, who had not grown up being taught the law of Moses, who had grown up being taught you can eat whatever you want, horse, cat, dog, whatever, it doesn't matter, right? And, and they were doing that and living that, and they too had come to recognize that Jesus is the Christ and had placed their faith in him and they were saved. And so you have these individuals, Jewish Christians from their background, Gentile Christians from their background, and they had been thrust together into one local church. And we're commanded to walk in unity. But here was the problem. They held different convictions over areas of freedom because of their background. Some of these Jewish Christians who had grown up in a setting, who had been taught throughout their entire lives, that there were certain foods and drinks that you didn't partake of. Really, foods in this case. Foods that you didn't partake of. They were taught certain foods were unclean. And, and they were also taught that there were certain days that were just different than other days. The Sabbath was a holy day. You treat Saturday differently than you do any other day. There were certain feast days and festival days that they were taught to practice and observe. Passover, all of these days were, were different than any other normal day. And so though Jesus Christ had come and lived and died and was raised so that they were no longer bound to those food laws... He had declared all foods clean. They could eat whatever they want, drink whatever they want. And though they were free now not to have to honor one day as vastly different than another, they could live as all days alike, their consciences were bound to think and believe that they should still bind themselves to those Old Testament food laws. They should still bind themselves to those Old Testament laws about treating this particular day different than that particular day. And Paul refers to this group of Jewish Christians as those who are weak or weak in faith. Now when he says that, this isn't him taking a shot at them. He's not being derogatory. He's merely saying that they're weak in their faith because as a matter of fact, Christians are free to eat what they want. We're not bound to the food laws anymore. Jesus had declared all foods clean. Christians are free to treat all days alike if they want. Festival days and feast days, the Sabbath day, do, do whatever, right? So, so Paul was referring to this group as those who, who didn't quite have the strength of faith 
to really believe they could walk in freedom in these areas. They really felt like they were still bound to these old covenant uh, restrictions of food laws and festival days and feast days and Sabbath. And so Paul refers to them as weak. And again, just to let you know very clearly that we're not bound in these areas, Paul would write to the Colossian believers because the Colossians were being told by some, you have to celebrate these certain days. You have to eat certain foods or avoid certain foods. And Paul had written this, Colossians 2, 16 and 17, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So Paul had made very clear to the Colossian believers and made clear in the other parts of the New Testament that believers are not bound to avoid certain foods and drink. They are not bound to have to honor certain days above others because Jesus Christ has come. And in the same way that you and I are not bound to make animal sacrifices because Jesus came and those things were just a shadow and he's the substance, so it is with food laws and festival days. But again, these Jewish believers were struggling to really exercise their freedom, and so they restrained themselves. They abstained from eating certain foods, convictionally. They abstained from drinking certain drink, convictionally. Paul will mention in the next section, meat and wine. They treated certain days as different than other days. The Sabbath was to be kept holy. They were were certain festival days, certain new moons, these kinds of things. They They were binding themselves to that. But these Gentile Christians, on the other hand, that Paul refers to as strong believers. Now, again, that's not, therefore, they're vastly superior than their Jewish brothers. No, 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 no. He refers to them as strong because they had the strength to understand they were no longer bound. They were free in these areas. And these two groups were coexisting in the church in Rome, but perhaps struggling. And so Paul writes this. Now, let me show you in the text why I say that we know these two groups exist in the church. Look at verse 2. Paul's just describing the situation there in the Roman church, and he says, one person believes he may eat anything. I think that's describing those Gentile Christians. While the weak person eats only vegetables. I think that's the description of the Jewish believers. Or look at verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another. Again, the Jewish Christian while another esteems all days alike. I think that's reference to the Gentile Christian. And what Paul is showing us by just noting that this is going on in the church in Rome is he's saying to us, it is okay. Christians have the freedom in this area. That is what Paul's talking about this. These are not areas of sin. Christians with regard to food or drink or treating all days alike, you have the freedom to eat what you want and drink what you want and treat all days alike. But it's also true that you have the freedom to abstain from eating certain things. And you have the freedom to abstain from drinking certain things. And you have the freedom to treat certain days as different than another if you want, to esteem certain days above others. And so the first thing that I just want to note is in matters of uh, freedom, Christians can have differences of opinion. And again, I believe that we have them this morning. Again, just to take the example of alcohol. I think it's very clear in the Bible that drunkenness is condemned. I think we have to agree about that across the board. 
But I think it's also clear that drinking alcohol itself is not condemned. The alcohol, just on its own and here intrinsically, is not sinful. So the scripture says, for example, in Psalm 104, 15, that the Lord made wine to gladden the heart of man. In John chapter 2, Jesus turns the water into wine. In 1 Corinthians, it's pretty clear that when they came to the Lord's table, what they were drinking in communion was wine. In fact, it's so clear that it was an intoxicating beverage of wine that the Corinthians were drinking too much of it and they were getting drunk. So I think what everyone can agree on is that drunkenness is sin, and yet there are some, again, in the congregation who I think would joyfully partake of that, while others would agree the Bible condemns drunkenness, but they would go that extra mile and say that we, in our consciences, they believe, should not practice consuming alcohol. And at best, at worst maybe, at best, I could think they would say that it's simply unwise for anyone to do. They feel pricked in their conscience. And so how then do we walk through this? How do we live out this area of freedom where we have disagreements? Okay, so first point, we're just going to have them. Now, here's my answer. I'm going to answer it in three points. The second point of my sermon is the first one. Number two, in these areas, by that I mean in these areas of freedom, the strong should not mock or despise those who are weak. The strong should not mock or despise those who are weak. In other words, in these areas of freedom, there are certain temptations that arise in our hearts, depending on which side we're on. If we're on the side that thinks you should abstain or treat certain days differently, if they're the side that thinks you should partake or treat all days alike, there are certain temptations that arise in our hearts that are different. And in the case with the strong, the temptation for the strong is to mock or despise those who are weak. That is, the temptation for those who partake is to mock those who think they should not partake and are abstaining. Paul makes this very clear in a few places in our text. The first one is in verse 1. This is how Paul begins our text. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over his opinions. In other words, what Paul is saying is this. He's saying to the strong who realize that they have this freedom and they're walking in and exercising this freedom. Paul says, listen, when you receive a brother into the membership of your church like we've done this morning, welcome him. Receive that brother. But if you know that he has a conscience issue and he thinks that he should avoid eating certain foods or he should avoid drinking certain drinks or he needs to treat certain days of the week differently than others, then do not welcome him only to begin to ridicule him and mock him and attack him for his convictions. Welcome him, and when you welcome him, don't jump into quarreling over opinions. That's what I want you to avoid. Paul also makes this clear that he doesn't want us to despise that brother in verse 3. He writes, let not the one who eats, that's the strong, despise the one who abstains. Again, he doesn't want you to despise him. Or in verse 10. The first phrase is referring to the weak brother, but the second one, so first he starts out in verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? We're going to get to that. But look at the second sentence. Or why do you despise your brother? You see, the particular temptation that, that strong believers face is the temptation to mock and ridicule and despise those who are weaker. So let's use an example now. We'll do a different example. 
We'll use the example of the days. I'm trying to say with food and drink and days because that's what Paul deals with here. There's some in our congregation, I believe, who, who, who are convicted in their conscience that Sundays, everybody agrees we should gather with the saints and worship on Sundays. But the way we live on Sunday afternoon might look a lot different. And there are some of you, perhaps, who are really convicted that Sundays should be set aside as a day of rest. And that's how you spend your afternoon. The idea that you would get out and mow your grass on Sundays seems as foreign to you as flying to Jupiter. And there are others of you who orient your lives around mowing on Sunday afternoons. (laughs) And again, you may be sitting beside one another. And the temptation for those who feel like they have freedom to treat every day alike is to look at their brothers who are abstaining from certain food and drink or who are abstaining from mowing the grass on Sundays or doing whatever. The temptation is for the stronger brother walking in his freedom to look at his weaker brother and despise him, to ridicule him, to think he's being foolish and silly, unnecessarily shackling himself. He may look and go, man, come on. You've got freedom to eat this. You've got freedom to drink this. You've got freedom to get out and pick up sticks or mow your yard. You know, and and he begins to look down on his brother, and Paul says, don't do that. If you want to walk in unity as a church, this is key. One, to the strong brothers walking in your freedom, his first exhortation is, you should not mock or despise those who are weak. Don't do it. That's our first step. Point three, our second step. In these areas, the weak should not pass judgment on those who are strong. Point three. Now, there. In these areas, the weak should not pass judgment on those who are strong. So again, he mentions this. Note the different exhortations he gives them. To the strong, don't despise the weak. But to the weak, he's saying don't pass judgment on the strong. We see that, for example, in verse 3. We've already seen the first half, verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. But then he goes to the other side. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Or verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Again, just making very clear, the temptation for the weak in this case is to pass judgment. Now, again, notice these temptations are different. And I think they make sense when you think about them. Again, use that, use that mowing on Sunday illustration. For the brother that thinks he has freedom to mow his grass on Sunday and walks in that freedom, and he does have freedom. Again, the, these, these days were just shadows pointing to the substance in Christ. So if you want to treat every day alike, you have freedom to do that. You can pick up sticks in your yard on Sunday. You can do it on Saturday. You can do it on Christmas or Easter. It doesn't matter. But to that brother that's out mowing his grass on Sunday, and he's looking at his neighbor who is refusing to mow his grass on Sunday, thinking the grass needs mowed, but I'm bound to rest. The temptation for that strong brother is to mock and ridicule, right? To despise. We've already gone over that. Why are you letting your grass grow? Oh, it's because you've shackled yourself with this unnecessary rule that you think you have to live out. Temptation to despise. Don't do that. But you know what that temptation for that brother on his couch is when he looks out the window and sees his brother mowing the grass? The temptation isn't to mock him. The temptation is to judge him. The temptation is to look out the window and go, sinner, 
just wait till Monday, right? Well, why, why, why can't you do it? And so, again, the temptation is to pass judgment. And so Paul then, knowing that that's going to be the particular temptation the weaker brother feels, he, he adjusts his exhortation to that particular temptation. Instead of saying, don't despise him, he says specifically, don't pass judgment on him. Why should not the weaker judge, brother pass judgment on the stronger brother? Paul gives us three reasons. There's no, I don't have these points listed. I'm just going to name them for you. The first reason is because God approves of that stronger brother exercising his freedom. God approves of that stronger brother exercising his freedom. So the weaker brother may look and go, sinner for eating that, sinner for drinking that, sinner for mowing your grass. You know what God says? I'm fine with it. That's Paul's point in verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Why, Paul? Why should not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who is eating? For God has welcomed him. See what Paul's saying? Paul's saying, you may look at him and think what he's doing is clearly wrong. I would not welcome him when I see him doing that. And Paul says, God welcomes him. You may pass judgment on him. God's not. God's saying he's got freedom to do it. And he's doing it. So don't pass judgment on him. Reason number two for why the weak brother should not pass judgment on the strong brother is because you need to recognize your brothers aren't under your judgment, but under God's judgment. Your brothers and sisters aren't under your judgment, but under God's judgment. Verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. So, so just as you would not in the workplace, I could not walk into your workplace and say to your boss, you know, what are you doing? Telling your employees to do this or that. He would go, who are you? Manage your own employees. Get out of here, right? Paul uses that same illustration, and he says, listen, when you have a master and a servant, you're not going to step in and tell another master how to, how to handle and direct his servants. So Paul says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master. He stands or falls. You, you can't judge another servant. He's being judged by his master. So put the, what Paul's saying here is, when you look at your brother or sister in Christ, recognize God has not put you in their lives that you might judge them in matters of freedom. Now, that phrase is so crucial when I say that. In matters of freedom. We're not talking about sin. In fact, Paul will make very clear to the Corinthians, when we're talking about sin, you not only can, you must judge your brother. I've said this a number of times, and I'll say it again just to make it very clear. What's worse than Christians in the church committing adultery is a church which will say nothing to those professing believers about what they're doing. It's the job of the church to judge. Paul says, we don't judge outside the church. We know sinners are going to sin. But we judge inside the church. And this is why we warn one another. We call one another to repent. Right? In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 to this individual who would not repent, remove him from the church. That's what Paul said earlier. The text I quoted from Titus 
If you get someone who's being divisive, warn them. Warn them again. And then have them removed. Have nothing to do with them. Right? Paul's serious about judging sin. But in matters of freedom. So again, Paul would not be saying, don't judge your brother who's committing adultery. But he does say, don't judge your brother for eating certain foods. Don't judge your brother for drinking certain drinks. Don't judge your brother for picking up sticks in his grass on Sunday. Don't think of yourself as his judge, but recognize he has a judge. Again, in verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And don't think that when Paul says that, his implication is, listen, he's got a judge. You don't have to judge him. God's going to get him for what he's doing. That's not why he says, look how verse 4 ends. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. See what Paul's saying? It's not before you that he stands or falls. It's before God that he stands or falls, and he's going to stand, because God's going to make him stand. Why? Because God approves of this freedom he's exercising. It's fine. Reason number three for why the weak should not judge his brother. He needs to understand that his brother is seeking to honor the Lord just as he's seeking to honor the Lord. He needs to understand that his brother is seeking to honor the Lord and what he's doing the same way that he is seeking to honor the Lord and what he's doing. Again, Paul makes this clear in verse 6. He says, now in verse 6, he's going to speak of the weak and the strong. And he's going to say the same thing about both of them. So verse 6. The one who observes the, day, observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Now this is an important thing for us to recognize. Because I think we easily have a category for abstaining in order to honor the Lord, right? So I don't think we have any problem with thinking that certain individuals in the Christian life whose consciences are convicted that they need to avoid certain food or drink or that they need to treat some days differently than others, Again, we all agree we need to gather and worship the Lord on Sunday. I, I mean things like Sunday afternoon mowing the grass, right? On those issues, I think we all can acknowledge an individual who says, I know I have freedom, but I just feel convicted that I need to rest on Sundays. Or I know I have freedom, I just am making the decision that I'm never going to drink of alcohol in my life. I think it's easy for us to look at that brother or that sister and say, you know what? They're doing that to honor the Lord. That's why they're making that decision. I may not agree with it. I may practice something differently, but they're doing that to honor the Lord. Sometimes, though, it's hard for those who are abstaining to recognize that same truth in regard to their brother or sister in Christ who's partaking. Sometimes the only category that weaker brothers and sisters have for stronger brothers or sisters eating or drinking of certain things, the only category they have is rebellion. They would say, you know what? I don't think there's any reason why anyone would drink a glass of wine unless they want to rebel against the Lord. 
And Paul says, not so fast. You're abstaining in honor of the Lord. They're eating and drinking in honor of the Lord. And that's what you need to understand, brothers or sisters. There is a category for Christians who are zealous about honoring the Lord with what they do with their lives. And some of them in their zeal to honor the Lord abstain. And some of them in their zeal to honor the Lord partake. And both can be honoring to the Lord. And that's the final thing that Paul recognizes in, in, in this, these reasons why the weak brother should not pass judgment on those who are strong. So, again, just quick review. In matters of freedom, we may differ on our convictions. Strong, those who are walking in that freedom and exercising it, don't judge. I mean, rather, don't despise, don't ridicule, don't mock your weaker brothers who are abstaining or treating some days differently than others. And those of you who are weak, who are abstaining and treating these differently, don't pass judgment on those who are mowing the grass on Sunday or partaking of food or drink that you would avoid. And then let me make one final point. Something that I think is key for us as we walk forward in this. Number four, what is key is for all of us to live unto Christ and know we'll stand before him in judgment. What is key is for all of us to live unto Christ and know we'll stand before him in judgment. Now, I recognize that what we're talking about this morning requires great Christian maturity. In fact, I'll tell you something. As a pastor, here's a particular temptation. I felt it. I felt it preparing this message. I think most other pastors feel it all the time. And many other pastors would probably go a different way than me. In fact, there might be some pastors today that say, what an idiot. I can't believe he's bringing up this topic. And the reason we avoid it is because what I'm telling us to do to walk together, although I'm acknowledging different convictions we have, it requires great Christian maturity. It requires great grace and charity toward one another. But the reason I'm bringing it up is, is twofold. One, because this is the issue in the text, right? I mean, even the issue of alcohol I brought up, you could say, well, Paul doesn't mention it. Well, next in the text we're looking at the next week, he's bringing up eating meat and drinking wine. He brings it up. But a second reason why I want to bring it up is because I have confidence in this particular local church. I have confidence in you as my brothers and sisters. I've watched you exercise great maturity in the Christian life. And I think we can do this. I think we can walk together in unity. I think those of us who are choosing to do one thing can walk not despising those who are abstaining. And I think those of us who are abstaining can choose not to pass judgment on those who are strong. I think you can do this. But let me just give you a, a few keys going forward as you live unto the Lord. Live unto the Lord and know that we'll stand before him in judgment. Let me mention Three final things underneath this. I do have these on the slide. I've, I've numbered them as A, B, and C. A, be fully convinced that what you're doing is Christ-honoring. If you want to know how we walk forward in this, whatever we're doing, one, be fully convinced. That word there is key, convinced. Be fully convinced in your heart that what you're doing is Christ-honoring. If you go back to verse 5, Paul's describing, again, these individuals who are making different decisions, who have different convictional matters. But he says something of each of these groups. Verse 5, one person 
esteems one day as better than another. That's the guy that would not mow on Sundays, right? While another esteems all days alike. That's the guy who has his mowing business on Sundays after he goes to church. Amen. Paul says to each of them, at the end of verse 5, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. What's Paul saying there? What Paul's saying is this. Each one of those brothers, although they're choosing to do different things, they need to be fully convinced in their own mind that what they're doing is honoring to Jesus Christ. In fact, I've talked about this as area of freedom. In fact, I'll say this. If you're not convinced that what you're doing honors Christ, then what you're doing is sinning. Let me show this to you in a verse we're going to look at next week, and then I'll come back to verse 5. Look at verse 14 of Romans 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus Christ that nothing is unclean in itself. Paul makes this very clear. He's like, I'm not going to beat around the bush. If I go to somebody's house and they're like, tonight we're serving catfish, Paul is eating it. He is fully convinced. He's persuaded. He knows the Old Testament rule, but he knows that all foods are clean, and he can eat whatever he wants. He makes it very strongly clear. I know and I'm persuaded. There is not an ounce of doubt in my mind that I have absolute freedom to eat that catfish or dog or whatever it is. Right? I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus Christ that nothing is unclean in itself. But then listen to the second half of the verse. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Now, there's an objective truth. It's not unclean. You can eat it. But there's also a subjective reality. If you're fully convinced in your heart that it's wrong to eat catfish then here's what you need to do. Don't eat catfish. Why? Because it's actually sinning if you eat catfish while being convinced in your heart that what you're doing is wrong. I think we see this in children. I've seen this. You've no doubt seen this in your children. There have been times that you tell your kid, I don't want you to go into the living room. And there may be some specific reason why you don't want them to go into the living room. Maybe, you know, you've got, you've you've swept up some dust piles and you don't want them to run through. And so your kid knows he's not supposed to go in the living room. You've given specific instructions. He's not supposed to go in the living room. And he looks at you in the kitchen and then he takes off running for the living room. And he gets in the living room and that kid has sinned. He's dishonored the Lord. He's disobeyed his parents. And so you take your child and you, you know, Ted trip or whatever, right? You shepherd his heart and, uh, and uh, discipline him and, and everything that, that involves, right? <laughs> Amen. All right. Uh, so so, so you, you, you do all that, right? And then there's, there's a funny thing that will sometimes happen at other moments in your life. And you know this too, right? You know when you told your child, don't go in the living room, there was a specific reason. You had just swept up some dust piles. You didn't want him to run through them. But there are other times, let's say the next day, there's no reason why he can't run in the living room. But he doesn't know that. And he thinks in his heart, he's not supposed to go in the living room. And you know what he does? He looks at you and very rebelliously turns and runs in the living room. Now on that occasion, you and I both know, he had the freedom to run in the living room. What's the big deal? 
the big deal was in his heart. He thought he was rebelling. That's a problem. That's sin. Paul's saying the same thing here. If you think, if your conscience tells you it is sin to drink wine, then don't you touch it. Because if you started drinking it, it would be sin. Even if your brother, who knows he has freedom, partakes. Don't do it. Now, there are plenty of other reasons. In fact, I have a footnote here. Read the manuscript. There are for some for whom drinking alcohol is sinful. If you're under 21, if you're a union student, on and on and on, right? Because you've, you've signed contracts, you're under the law, right? Whatever. Um, but this is why I say, this is why Paul says in verse 5, whether you esteem a day different or you treat all days alike, you need to be fully convinced in your own heart. If you can't start that mower on Sunday afternoon knowing this is honoring to Christ, then you better not start it. Right? So this is what Paul says. Be fully convinced that what you're doing is Christ-honoring. Number two. Seek to honor and glorify the Lord in everything you do. Seek to honor and glorify the Lord in everything you do. So you say, I'm not going to do anything unless I'm fully convinced this is honoring to Christ. And everything I do in life is going to be about honoring and glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul just just assumes this is true of us. Look at verse 6. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. He says, I know you guys are making different decisions, but every one of you is making them for the same reason. You want to honor the Lord. He just assumes that to be true. But then he says it specifically in verses 7 through 9. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we're the Lord's. To this end, Christ died and lived again so that he might be Lord both of the living, of the dead and of the living. Paul says, listen, live your life in honor of the Lord. Even when you die, you're going to die in honor of the Lord because everything you do is done to the Lord. He lived and he died so that he might make you his, so that you might be a servant and you might be his master. Therefore, seek to honor and bring glory to the Lord in everything you do. And then finally, remember that we'll stand before the Lord and give an account to him. Remember that we'll stand before the Lord and give an account to him. This is what Paul reminds us of in verses 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? Now he's gotten both groups. And then he's now going to ground why they shouldn't pass judgment and why they shouldn't despise. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Remembering that we'll stand before the Lord and give an account to him will help us in two ways. One, it will help us individually just to always examine every decision we make and say, how might I honor the Lord? And I want to make sure I'm glorifying the Lord in everything I do. Because one day I'm going to stand before him and give an account. So I want to honor the Lord in my actions. But it also helps us not to look down on or to judge our brothers. Because it's a reminder that they too will stand before the Lord. And they'll give an account. And the Lord hasn't said to me or you, I'm giving you my task of judging my brothers and sisters in areas of freedom. That's his job. And so we can walk just knowing, you know what, they're going to answer to the Lord one day. And if what they've done is honoring, he'll let them stand. And if what they've done is not Christ-honoring, he'll make that clear to them as well. 
Now again, this I think is our way forward. Don't despise, don't judge. And the, one of the things that's going to make that easier is if all of us live our lives doing everything we do, fully convinced it's Christ-honoring, doing everything we do, seeking to glorify and honor the Lord, and remembering that we're all going to stand before our Lord and give an account to him. So this is my answer, because I think it's Paul's answer. How can we walk in unity while holding different convictions? Just walk according to these exhortations. Again, I know it requires great maturity. I know it requires great showing of grace to one another. I know it requires loving one another when it's hard to do. But if ever you think to yourself, my brother or my sister in Christ is making it hard for me to show them grace and love, just think back to the cross. When you were enemies of God, he demonstrated his love for you by sending his son to live, die on the cross for your sins, and be raised from the dead on the third day so that you might place your faith in him and have forgiveness of sins. And brothers and sisters in Christ, if we've been shown that much grace and love, how can we not show that to our brothers and sisters for whom Christ died? So we're going to take a moment of silence this morning as we come to the table. If you're not a believer, I want to encourage you to place your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. We've been singing about it, talking about it. If you'd like to talk to me, I'd love to talk to you more about that. If you are a believer this morning, you profess faith in Christ through baptism, you're a member of a gospel-preaching church, then I want to encourage you after this moment of silence, we're going to pass out the bread and pass out the cup. We're going to all eat together and then drink together. I want, you, I want to encourage you to eat and drink with us. It will be a visible demonstration by us as a congregation that we've heard the commands Christ has given us. And our answer to these commands are yes and amen. So let's take a moment of silence now as we prepare to come to the table.